Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, I posed this question at the end of last week's episode. What is the most misunderstood lyric in rock history? Well, I think it's probably this one. Revved up like a douche. <laughs> the man who sings this song is our guest this week. It is Chris Thompson. Now, Chris's career, as you'll find out in here, has had a little bit of everything, and it's gone on for decades. Back in the 70s, obviously, he was the front man for Manfred Mann's Earth Band, who had a huge hit with this one, Blinded by the Light. And since then, he's done a bunch of stuff, lots of solo work. He was a member of a band called Night for a while, which we didn't... It comes up a few times in here, but we didn't talk that much about. Luckily for me, as you guys know, he has lots of soundtrack songs. All the Right Moves, Playing for Keeps, American Anthem, all these great tunes that I love. We get to hear the stories behind all of those. Well, these days, he's still at it. In fact, he's on the verge of retirement, and he talks about it in here. He put out an album in 2016 called Toys and Dishes that I think is a really fascinating rock record. To me, it sounds like a man in the middle of a midlife crisis. And I ask him about that in here. We talk about some of the songs. So anyway, we don't get too deep in some of the bands he was in, but this is kind of more of one of those career retrospective conversations. The stories behind a lot of the songs, people he knew along the way. There is a fascinating story near the end on here. He was very involved in the organization and the rehearsals of the Freddie Mercury tribute concert, that famous show. You guys have probably all seen it. He has a very interesting take on that. He kind of got screwed on some things. And uh, his story about that is fascinating. He's worked with like everybody, the Doobie Brothers, as you know, they're favorites of mine, Patrick Swit Simmons, Michael McDonald, tons of people. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you're less familiar with Chris Thompson, I mean, he's 75 years old. He's done everything. So I hope you hear some stuff in here that you like. He wrote that song, You're the Voice, which is the biggest selling single in Australian rock history. So there's tons to be learned here, tons of dots to connect, which I love. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. He called me from his home in Belgium. All right, now I have, uh, I have a lot of questions. I know you've done a lot of different things in your career. But I feel like we have to start by talking about Blinded by the Light because it's probably the most misheard lyric in rock history. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've just always wondered if uh, what the story behind that would be. I mean, uh, was this? In I, I doubt it was intentional, but after the fact, when you recorded it, did you think, well, that could be kind of provocative if we leave that alone. Or was it the producer that did that? Or was it, did no one think about it until decades later? What is the story behind this? Well, it's it's a two-part story, really. Firstly, well, let me start by saying, I never heard Springsteen's version mm. before we recorded ours. Um, I'm not sure whether that was me on purpose or Maverick on purpose or whatever. But I just kind of, when I, doing an audition for the band, basically, um, I went to his house and um, he had a piano there and he just gave me the lyrics and said, this is how it goes. And it was the reason for Mick Rogers leaving was because he didn't want to sing that many lyrics in in a short or that kind of lyric or whatever really? in, in that short space. He couldn't. He said he couldn't do it. So anyway, wow. so the, Manfred gives me the lyric and then kind of mumbles away while he plays his version of the song, which, of course, changed grossly over time while we were recording it, I'll get to that in a minute. 
Yeah, so he added me these words, and, and you know, they're pretty interesting words, as you know very well. Um, they're very interesting. And, and then I got to this part, which was, which was like cut loose like a goose, and I just, you know, I said to him, I don't really, you know, that's pretty weird, that, but I didn't <laughs> want to start off my whole meeting of Manfred by complaining about the lyrics. So I just said, oh, I think that's pretty weird, but we left it as it was. Uh-huh. And basically, I did an audition at Manfred's house. I know this sounds stupid, but I think almost every day for about a month, I went to his house, which was really? the opposite side of London to mine. So it was a big trek. And um, yeah, we just sat around the piano. And we played and played. And every time Blinder came out, we were doing some other songs as well um, for, for the Roaring Silence record. And um, every time it came up, I said, didn't like it. We got into the studio. Well, we actually... You know, I didn't officially get the gig, but we started rehearsing with the band, four tracks, oh. blinded one of them, of course. And, you know, we talked about the lyric a, a few times and Manfred said, well, if you don't like that, let's write something else, which, of course, you know, we shouldn't have done really without right. getting Bruce's permission, which he wouldn't have given us permission for, of course. And so we kind of between the two of us, we came up with. Uh, this lyric that has become the most un, you know, wrapped up like a deuce. Uh-huh. We had to kind of keep in the vibe of Springsteen's lyrics. Uh-huh. And, you know, I sat with Bruce one time at dinner a few years later and I asked him what it was. And, and you know, he said kind of it was like stream of consciousness, the first kind of words that came into my head. So we did the right thing. We kept in the thing wrapped up like a deuce. Uh-huh another runner in the night, which kind of we thought sang better. Uh-huh. Cut loose like a goose. I can't even remember what came after that, but it's on his record. You can hear it. So, you know, we changed them. So that's part one of the story. So, you know, we changed the lyrics. And I guess I really don't understand why Bruce didn't say, you know, because he didn't like it. He didn't like the recording of it. Really? But maybe it's because it was being successful and he was in a situation mm. where he wasn't able to do anything because he was in um, litigation with whoever his manager was. Uh, okay. So he couldn't play, couldn't record, couldn't do anything. So I guess it was quite useful to have some money coming in, even for Bruce. In those right, days. right. <laughs> so anyway, so that's part one of the story. So he didn't okay. say anything about that or try and stop it or anything. Um, and part two of the story is when we recorded it, there's a thing called azimuth which is what you have to line up on an old, you know, on the, on the two-track tapes that we used to record on. So we, we had a 24-track machine, and the job of the um, assistant engineer was to make cups of tea, and then before the recording started, to um, line up the azimuth on the machine. Uh-huh. So if you did that every day, then it would always be okay. It would always be lined up, and that was a very, very important job. Well, the day I recorded the vocal, he didn't do that. Mm. So we'd already had enough trouble with the vocal. I'd recorded it one time, and I thought it was really good, and Manfred had gone over it to um, put a tambourine or something on it. So I had to do it again. So I went in to do it again. during Everyone else was at lunch, and the engineer, Laurie Latham, and I went, and we recorded it. We tried to do it in one take, which we did. I mean, I'd sung it a million times, so it wasn't uh-huh. the first take or anything. But we tried to do it in one take, and we did. And then I double-tracked it uh-huh. <laughs> uh, while we were in the mixing stage. So the azimuth was lined up on that day. So 
that's where we got that funny sound where you can't, un, you know, sh- uh-huh. funny uh-huh. thing. Everybody thinks it's douche. Uh-huh. And, 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 and they can't understand the lyric because it, there was a lot of S's and all sorts of stuff going on and a double track. Yeah. But we liked the double track sound, but you, we didn't want to go. I didn't want to go and redo. It's not like nowadays where they could have dropped in that those lines on Pro Tools yeah. or something. Um, we couldn't. It was too dangerous to kind of drop in and out. It was just too difficult. So we had a rush to get the record finished, and and you know, it came out like that with uh-huh. the azimuth being lined up wrongly for the main record, and for the double track, it was done properly. And that's what gave it that sound, and that's why people can't understand it. And that's, in my, the way I feel about it, it's because it's a good reason for why it was being successful, because you and I both know Uh when when a record is being played all the time on the radio, people go out and buy it. They used to. Uh Uh So people didn't understand what it was. So people would say, play that song again. In the days when you could call the radio stations and say, play it again. So they play it again, play it again. It just got played all the time. And it just went zooming up the charts to number one. And I think, you know, it's still what people talk about. (laughs) I was thinking that same thing. I thought, you know, this song is great, but because of your performance and that, that sound effect or whatever it is, that's what makes it memorable. Well, you know what I mean? And it was nothing like Springsteen's version. It was totally different. It was reworked in the studio. It, you know, it became a song. Um, no offense to Bruce, but Bruce's is more like a monologue. Yeah. Um, and we turned it into a song with highs and lows. Yeah. That yeah. made it a hit as well. I mean, it's a great arrangement. Manfred's incredibly good at doing arrangements for other people's songs. And the band, I have to say, the band at that point, that was their strength as well. Everybody had a little bit of an input and 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 the arrangements kind of took shape over a very long period of time, which is a luxury we don't have anymore. Yeah. But I'll tell you a funny story. When I was when I was living in LA, which is like ninety-nine or something like that, and I was driving to to do a commercial or something, and I can't remember the name of those two guys that are on on the LA radio in the morning to are they funny guys? I can't they're probably not on it anymore, obviously. And they uh-huh. was right, if anybody can tell me the name of this lyric, it, what the lyric is for this blighted by the light, you know, you know, ring in now and tell us. <laughs> So I'm driving. So I pulled over into a gas station and, um, you know, took out my money and tried to get in. And I was ringing. It was engaged. It was ringing. It was engaged. Ringing, it was engaged. Finally got through. And I said, look, I'm going to I want to talk to you about the lyric. They said, sorry, it's done. And they put the phone down. <laughs> so the only person in L.A. that could have actually told them what the lyric was. That's great. They put the phone down on me. So. <laughs> Love it. Um, so what that's, does, that's that's story does that. even mean? Is it is the deuce a reference to a car, like a little well, deuce? Yeah, in, in, like that? in our reckoning, reckoning, it was a. Okay. It was. It was um, it, we we had to kind of make up our mind as to what the song was about when we were, you know, to kind of inter- for me to interpret it. I had to kind of you know figure out in my mind what I was singing about. Uh huh. That's why we kept we kept in this kind of stream of consciousness thing, like you know, as close to Bruce's. Yeah. Feeling as we could with the lyric. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, isn't it strange that that one, that one little thing has turned a song into, it's made it immortal. You know, I haven't seen that Bruce Springsteen movie by the same name, Blinded by the Light that came yeah. out a few months ago. 
but I have a feeling that it's where you know we're still talking about it, and it yeah. becomes the name of the movie because of the sound effect, you know, well, because I, of the douche thing. Yeah, well, I'm I'm sure at the time the engineer didn't fit. The, the, right. he, I, he got fired because of it. So really, maybe yeah. Well, he did because it was a huge mistake, and every you know it was like, and we 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 went on a, and I kid you not, we went on a fifty station radio station tour in i think it was 10 days or something like that just to tell people that it wasn't douche <laughs> because you know in the middle middle america people yeah. very upset uh-huh <laughs> they thought it was douche so we went on this warner brothers put us on this 50 date me and manfred on this 50 date radio station tour to tell everybody it wasn't douche <laughs> that is Oh, funny. So as soon as you guys heard the final product or whatever, everyone's in, I'm gathered, I'm, I'm guessing everyone is gathered in like, you know, the, the room, a room of a studio behind the boards and all that. Okay, guys, we're going to put on the new album. Here it is. This is it. And blinded by the light comes on and you hear the douche part. Does everyone kind of look at each other and say, Whoa, what happened there? Or is it something you don't pick up on until other people start telling you about it? There was two things we picked up on. One was the fact that the beginning of the song, I'm talking about when we listened to the album back. Uh-huh. <clears throat> well, we listened, we had the final, you know, when we put it together before it went to mastering. It wasn't after mastering. It was when we, when, after mastering, you don't want to listen to it because it's too late. Uh-huh. So we, we did have a playback of it all. And we all looked at each other at the beginning of the song and thought it's too boring. It didn't start with that piano. Mm-hmm. Uh, piano it started with some strings going oh no the piano's the winner yeah. we have to find another way to do it yeah secondly we had to redo the crossfade there's a crossfade in the song that wasn't good enough and the douche thing i think it got because the other things were monumental uh, it passed i don't think we even thought about it interesting until we started hearing it on the radio yeah okay I noticed um, in getting ready to talk to you, I was listening back to your backtrack uh, compilation album. Yeah. And it, there's a re recorded version of Blinded by the Light on there. Mad Mad Drummers, Bummers, Indians in the summer with the teenage diplomat. In the dance with the bumps and the adolescent pumps his way into his hands. With a boulder on my shoulder, feeling kind of older, trip the merry-go-round. With a fairy and pleasing, sneezing and wheezing, the calliope crash to the ground. She was blinded by the light, wrapped up like a deuce, another runner in the night. Blinded by the light, she got down, but she never got tight. I noticed that you made sure to enunciate deuce yeah, this yeah. time, but and which is great. It makes sense to do that, but it's also kind of, I don't know, not the point, at least of that song anyway. It's yeah, uh, maybe, maybe, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. I know. Anyway. Okay. Okay. 
Well, I was, I've always been curious what the story was there and, uh, and, uh, you know, how people live with these things and how they feel about it. Obviously, I mean, you've done so many things in your career and we're going to talk about all of them, but that's gotta be one of the things that, uh, I don't know. I mean, we're still talking about it. Like I said, this is 40 something years later. So, yeah. And you know so, what? Every time I do a gig, people are still singing it. So I bet that's true. That's true. Um, okay. Now in getting ready to talk to you, I was noticing, man, you're, your timeline kind of bounces around, you know, you move to different countries, you play, you go in and out of Manfred's band and other ones like Night and stuff like that. So I don't know, I, I normally kind of approach these things chronologically. I don't know that I'll be able to this time because it's, there's a lot of, uh, it bounces around so much. But I do, I do want to ask you about The Runner because that's, uh, that's one of my early MTV memories. You know, when I'm, a, I'm like 11 years old and I'm just starting to get really excited about MTV and it's on in the background all day long as it was back then. And Manfred Mann's The Runner. This is such a great song and you sing it. And I didn't I didn't connect the dots until years later when I started to become a fan of yours and all these soundtrack songs you did that I fell in love with too. What's the story of The Runner? Can you tell us that one? Sure. It starts with Virgin Records wanting uh, to sign Manfred didn't Manfred I'd already left yeah. and I was doing something else and and they offered Manfred a deal but only if if I was back in the band singing ooh okay so you know I was in a pretty nebulous space of time he came to me and asked but we, we always stayed in touch and I always did something on almost every record he ever made I think yeah. You know, from from when I joined the band, of course. So he asked me if he'd do this. And so I put some, you know, conditions in myself saying that, you know, I wanted it not to take three years like the last album. <laughs> and uh, of course, he agreed to that, which didn't stick with that piece of the bargain. But anyway, uh-huh. before the Olympic Games, we were approached by, oh, what's his name? Arista. Was that Clive Davis? Clive Davis. Clive yeah. Davis called Manfred and said, can you do an arrangement of this song um, for the Olympic Games? Because I believe it's a hit, but not like this. And, you know, Clive obviously thought, uh, you know, of Manfred being the arrangement king, really. Uh-huh. And, or the band as such, Manfred Man's Earth Band. 
we got the we got the thing. We did the we did the um, the track, the arrangement of it. Same thing. We actually played in the. We went back to the rehearsal studio and did it and recorded it. And Clive came over to England to listen to the mixes, which is a funny story itself, because Manfred had sent a mix. He said, "I want the vocal louder." And Manfred, oh. Manfred said, "Oh, okay." So he he went with two mixes, one of which he pretended to put the. This is Manfred being Manfred. He pretended uh-huh. to put the vocal up louder because his theory was that if you told someone the vocal was louder, it would appear louder. That's probably so we, true. We went, we went to the Park Lane, Hilton or whatever it was, and he had set up, Clive Davis had set up a big kind of sound system in his hotel room, uh-huh. had it set up for him. So we went in and he said, so Manfred, have you done the vocal with the, have you done the mix with the, you know, the, the louder vocal, like I asked you. And Manfred said, sure, but I'll play you the other one first. So he played um, the original mix. And Clive says, well, I don't know what you're playing me that for, because that vocal is not loud enough. And then Manfred said, well, I'll, I'll play, you the, play you the louder vocal, and it sounds much better, you know. So he put the tape on, and it had been on for about, I don't know, six words. And Clive uh-huh. pressed it down. He said, Manfred, that vocal is no louder. I want you to go away. And do a vocal, a louder vocal. And that was it. We got sent out of the room. The school boy <laughs> sent, sent back for detention to make it out. <laughs> pretty, fun, pretty funny. Oh, that's very, interesting. Wow. Very embarrassing because Manfred thought, you know, he, you know. Yeah, he thought he could outsmart Clive Davis. He could outsmart and mo- Clive Davis, yeah. And in most cases, I think he would have. Well, uh, everything I think he said is true, is. especially with a suit. They just like Clark, to hear themselves, you know. He's very sharp. He's he's the two dealings I've had with him. He's been right on the money. So there you go. Okay. So that's okay. the story with Runner. Clive asked us to do. We came out and and he pushed it. I'm not sure where it got to in the charts, but it was um, it got it did very well. Yeah, yeah. It was all and, over MTV back then. I remember that for sure. And it's another song that I play in my gigs always. You do. Yeah. Uh, and. You're now. I was going to get to this later, but I'll just ask you now. You live in Belgium. Do you primarily play in Germany or Europe or all it's, around? It, it's Where? almost always in, um, in Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Scandinavia. That's pretty much where I play. I mean, last year we did a gig in Greece, and I did one in New York. But generally, I have to say, it's Germany, Scan. You know, Germany, yeah. the gas territories, as they say. Okay. And uh, and Scandinavia. And you. Um, I, I mean, I hope this isn't too pointed a question. You're able to, between that and all the things you've done in your career, that's how you make your living. You're able to sustain yourself touring around that part of the world. Yes. I mean, okay. you know, I've obviously, I've also got songs that earn money as well. Yeah, right. And I'm going to ask but, you about Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've got a Norwegian band. We've been together for 20 years. It's a really good show. We do two and a half, two, two hours, 15 minutes. Nice. And um, it's, you know, we do, I would say, 65% Man From Man's Earth Band, you know, 35% other stuff, okay. new, new stuff, of course, and, and other things that I'm known for. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, in my last two years, I've, I've, I've decided to retire. So Ooh. I'm doing a two-year, um, the final round. Really? And then are you just done? No more touring? No more what? What are you going to do? No no more touring is because it's very hard what I do. And, you know, I'll be 75 in in two years' time. Oh, my gosh. And I would like to finish on a high for a start 
And yeah. secondly, you know, I'd like to do some other shit that I've been. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> to do. I've got a lot of writing to do. Uh, you know, I'm in the middle of a big project at the moment, writing project. Well, I nearly finished it, actually. Okay. And, um, I've got a couple of other ideas for things, and I've got, you know, I want to write some books. I want to drive down Route 66, yeah. see the story of Falls. You know what I mean? It's, I do. It's, um, you know, and yeah. I've got young children, so my kids are um, 11 and, and 12 and a half. Oh, my gosh. So, Goodness. You know, I want to spend some more time with them before they yeah, leave us alone. Okay, gotcha. Makes sense. Um, going back to The Runner, which I think, I think you, if you didn't mention this, I believe that song was tied in some way to the 84 Olympics. It was. A little, right? It okay. Was, it, was, it was tied by Clive's ability to tie anything to anything. True. <laughs> so he, he kind of got it as the official kind of rock song. Got it. The unofficial, okay. official rock song. So that's why it's got a lot of MTV coverage and it got played a lot. And I wondered. Okay. It was good. Um, I want to ask you specifically about that because that becomes a thing for you later on. You do a couple of songs for Wimbledon, The Challenge being one of them. That's yeah. a great tune, by the way. And uh, the Commonwealth Games, which I'm less familiar with, but how did you become the guy singing, you know, the theme songs to these big sporting events? Do you know? Um, no, not really. I mean, the Commonwealth Games was in New Zealand, which is where I grew up. So I kind of got asked to do that as a kind of international representative of New Zealand. And a friend of mine, a friend of mine, um, one of the, the bass player from Knight, in fact, Billy mm. Christian. He wrote it and he was producing it for the Commonwealth Games. And so he asked me to come sing it. So that was how that happened. Wimbledon, well, that was with Harold Faltermeyer. And right. Harold was, could, you know, he was asked by the Wimbledon people to write the, for Germany, for the, um, the, T, the sports channel in Germany. And we were lucky that was a year that Steffi Graf and Boris, Beck, um, Boris Becker. Oh. One, so you know, it was a quids in. Really, it was even better. And nice. they still, they still use that. Do, 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 do. They still use that um, for for Wimbledon in Germany. Still, so no way. That's wild. 
Yeah, I wondered you you become this guy. I, so let me. I'm projecting what I see, but so you're you know you sing for Manfred Mann for a few years. You've got Blinding by the Light and everything. You eventually leave to go solo, and you in the '80s you have a solo career, but you also become this sort of go-to guy for movie soundtracks, for theme songs like this, for some musical direction. Around, I want to ask you about the Freddie Mercury tribute concert here in a second. Was that? I mean. Are you just as happy doing all of these other things as you would be if you were, I don't know, like a rock star in and of your all by yourself? Does that make sense? I mean, are you are you happy with these projects? Do you are you, are they just as satisfying for you? No, I mean, I love doing other things. They're very very satisfying. I mean, you've asked the eternal question, really. Of course, it would have been a very nice thing to have been a, um, you know, a rock star if you want, or or to yeah. been successful in my own right in the same way that i was with man from man's earth band and um you know if people ever ask me what the one regret or are there any regrets i have in my musical career bouncing around which i guess is what you're asking when night was being successful and we were having trouble because we we weren't really good songwriters so we had to kind of pull in outside songs mm. richard came to me richard perry that is the, who uh -huh. produced it he came to me and because a song from a movie called If You Remember Me, the movie was The Champ. Yep. But yeah. I mean, that was that, my favorite movie when I was a little kid. I that, haven't seen it in probably 30 years, but when I was little, I watched it all the time. When you remember me, if you remember me, I hope you see it's not the way I want it to be. Or I'd be with you now But wherever you go My love goes with you Keep on smiling Keep on shining Even though you know you want to cry had the song from that that really spent an awful long time in the top 100 just kind of it was in the days when they had the top requests in the in the um music express or whatever it's called you know in, i can't remember what it's called where all the radio stations list their top 10 and everything they uh -huh. also had a request section and it was the highest request in some some radio stations spread all over america and somehow it just kept being a top request and somehow eventually it ended up by you know i can't even remember where it got to somewhere in the, in the top 10 and richard came to me and said look why don't we make a why don't we just get rid of night 
because we're having trouble with that. And what if we're going to use other people's songs? Why don't you and I make a record with your voice? And I turned them down because the band were all friends of mine. And, and that was probably a stupid move mm -hmm. because in the music business, nobody stay. Well, they still remain friends with me. But, but when it was difficult to keep the band together, they left. I got other jobs. So that was kind of my one regret. I should have taken Richard up on that. What he did with Leo Sayer, I guess, is what he wanted to do with, yeah. with some hits. Well, you know, that's a that point bit. where I could sing anything, really. I was lucky yeah. I had that. I was, my wife and I were talking about it. Yes, I don't know why. You know, at that point, I could have sung anything, any rock anthem, any anything at all, because my voice was at its peak at that period of time. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, um, you know, so I guess, you know, I am very happy with what happened to me. I mean, I'm lucky. You know, I had a, a number one with Blinded. I wrote a number one song for John Farnham, You're the Voice. Yeah. And, um, I had, you know, lots of success with various different things, but it would have been nice to have been successful in my own right. Yeah. And um, I didn't, I didn't do that because I, you know, because it didn't, that was, that was the time when I should have done it, when Richard mm -hmm. asked, but, um, you know, I mean, you can't always get it right in your life, but I, you know, that's, but I'm very happy. I'm not, I'm not happy about what I did. I'm very proud of what I did. Good. And um, yeah. Good, okay. Let's talk about You're the Voice. <clears throat> I mean, that's, you know this, that's one of the most, that's one of the biggest anthems ever. Um, from what I understand, I think you intended to sing it yourself, um, but somehow it got over to John, who had been fronting the Little River Band around that time. How? What's the story of You're the Voice? Well, the story is I did write it for myself. I was making a record with Atlantic at the moment. But um, when we played it to um, Doug Morris... Uh -huh. He said, nobody wants to listen to protest songs anymore. <laughs> so <clears throat> it became free. Um, and one of the guys I wrote with a guy called Andy Kunter, he was, well, he was in a band called Ice House. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were recording in the same studio as John was. And Andy overheard them saying that they really didn't have a hit. So he just pulled that cassette out of his pocket and gave it to them. And the rest is history, really. No way. Wow. Did you know John very well? Well, I knew John for a comedy record he made when I was growing up in New Zealand called Sadie the Cleaning Lady. Really? So when I heard that John wanted to do it, I said no. I said, Really? I said, Absolutely no. 
And unbeknown to me, John had already recorded it. But because it wasn't recorded, they needed the permission, my permission. Okay. Um, and I said no. And they called me and said, look, we'll record it at our own expense. And if you don't like it, then you can say no. Huh. And I said to them, put that in writing and fax it to me, which they did. <laughs> and uh, then they, you know, two days later, or however long the post takes to get from uh, Australia to England, where I was living at the time. It's incredible to think now that we had to wait for a recording. I know, right? <laughs> Unbelievable. You know, now yeah. I just, you put it on, we transfer, and they've got it. Uh-huh. That's anyway, right. So I put it on, and he did a fantastic job of it. He copied my demo almost identically, except for the bagpipes, which was his idea. So mm. it was, um, you know, I just went, yeah, it was fantastic. And, you know, it's the biggest selling single in Australian history, and... My mother called me one time and she told she was living in New Zealand and she called me my dear old mum who couldn't never understand that time was different in different places. She called me about three o'clock in the morning. She said, you've got to turn the television on. They're playing you're the voice. And it's like it's the national anthem. I said, Mum, I'm in England. It's not going to be the same. No, no, turn it on. Turn it on. Anyway, that's the so best. It became the national anthem of, of Australia. Yeah. You know, and, and I really hope that John goes out and raises some money for the Australian fires. I mean, I'm sure. Oh, no kidding. I'm sure he will. He did it last time with Coldplay, which was fantastic. So good. I hope that um, I hope that he does that. In fact, I, I sent a letter to my I sent an email to my publisher because I've, I have a version of it, which is the original demo. Yeah. Which I added bagpipes to myself. So I've got a version that sounds very much like John's. Because his original demo sounded, his record sounds just like my original demo, but without, without the bagpipes. So right. I had bagpipes in mind. So my publisher in Australia, I said, look, if anybody wants to put out a charity record or anything like that, they get welcome to use my version. So who knows? Okay, okay. I hope that, um, let's hope they can get the bloody fires out. It's, oh, no kidding. It's such a, it's so tragic. I mean, I love your voice, but John's voice, or at least the, his performance on that particular song is, it was the right voice for the right song. Don't you think to make it the anthem that it is? Not that you couldn't have done that, but there's a, there's a special chemistry going on there between his performance and your song. Don't yeah, you of think? course. Of course. Yeah. There's no doubt about it at all. I'll, give me an email and I'll, I'll send you mine.
I can send you my version of your the voice. I'd love that. I'd love yep. it. Great. Okay. That song sort of, I don't know, it, it was sort of like rediscovered a few years ago in that movie Hot Rod. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Okay. Did you find that? Was it sort of, I mean, we talk about the business side sensitively in here. That had to have been a kind of a nice little check in the mailbox that day. Well, yeah, I mean, you're the voice, I must say, is, is um, yeah, it, it pays the rent in a lot of ways. Good. Okay. It really, do, okay. It really does. It, it yeah, and it, it, yeah, it enables me to feel comfortable going into each year. <laughs> Good. Good. That's got to be nice. You deserve yeah, it's that. Very, it's very nice. It, it's, um, and it gets played all the time. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's great. It, it really is. And I got a couple of songs like that, you know, that, that, that are played a lot in Germany. They've been translated, you know, mm. by a guy called, um, uh, an artist called Peter Maffei. Uh, I wrote a couple of things for him. So, the, you know, the old songs, they keep making money, which is really right. a very, very nice thing. And, and uh, you know, and also for my kids, you know, it's yes. all, songs will always be there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I got to tell you what my favorite Chris Thompson song is. And I have a feeling with as many fans as you have, not a lot of people are throwing this one at you. But one of my favorite songs is All the Right Moves. And Jennifer Warren's performance on that song, especially your harmonizing on the chorus, gives me goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps right now just talking about it. I know that's uh, that's probably you know buried in your in your canon of great songs, but I love that tune. Well, the thing about that song is that you know, I mean, how many people? How could, how would you think of movie starring um, Tom Cruise? And then a duet with Jennifer Warnes, who had just come off the Joe Cocker duet, would be an, an abject failure. The movie failed, yeah. and and so did the song. Yes. But actually, it's nice that you say that because, you know, it's something that I, I always liked that song. And it was great working with Jennifer. And Good. The, and the funny thing is I kind of lost touch with Jennifer. I kept in touch with her a lot. And if she ever sees this thing she can get back in touch with me because I, I kept in touch with her and then we kind of lost contact she mm -hmm. kind of pulled away from technology yeah I could see that and and um and funnily enough I went and bought the last Leonard Cohen record just the mm -hmm. other day 
because I heard something on the radio and I, I, you know, yeah, I'm never, I'm not, was never a fan of Leonard Cohen's early stuff, but when he started singing with that deep voice and the last album he did before this called, if you want it darker, which is yes. just such a fantastic. And this, this, so I got this record home anyway, played a couple of tracks, was reading the thing and she, Jennifer's all over it. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I haven't yeah. heard from her in a long time. I wondered where she's she went. Doing, she's doing a lot of the backgrounds and stuff on that. So, so uh, it's nice that she's still. Yeah. She had such a wonderful voice. and She did. Uh, yeah. That's great. Okay. Yeah, I've always wondered where she went. She did put out, I think maybe a little bit before All the Right Moves, she did put out a an album of Leonard Cohen songs. Did she? Yeah. Um, I'm blanking on the name of it. Blue... Blue, it's one of his songs. Anyway, I, I don't remember the name of it. But well, I yeah, I haven't, yeah, I haven't heard from her in a long time. Yeah, I just wanted you to know All the Right Moves. It's one of my favorite songs. Well, and your, especially your performance and specifically your harmonizing. When I'm in the car by myself, I sing your parts. And uh, I, I just love it. Oh, man. I feel like the best singer in the world when I sing your parts of that song. Well, that's very nice. Thank you. Sure. Okay. I got to ask you about another one of my favorite songs ever. Um, so wrong from Patrick uh, Simmons' solo album, yeah, Arcade, yeah. Yeah. from the early '80s. Now you had sang on a uh, on um, the Doobie Brothers song uh, "Blank Enough," no stopping us now. How yeah. did you how did you go into the Doobies orbit? Well, Knight supported the Doobies for nine months. Okay, on the road, so I got to know Michael and Patrick, and ended up by working with them a lot. Yeah, and then I did Pat's album as well, and uh, hopefully Pat and I are going to write something together for my last in inverted commas cd that i'm going to start making very soon i i, I want to do something with pat because i love his style of playing and i love him yeah he's great i saw him the other day actually well the other day saw him in the middle of last year him and john mcphee they were here in brussels with the doobie so we we had a nice get together it was it That's was great. really great. yeah it was really good it was That's so nice great. missed the bus back to his hotel <laughs> That's, they went off without so we, we we took him back. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's nice to be in touch with those guys still. And McDonald, I uh, yeah, every now and again we talk together and and um, yeah, we I wrote some stuff with Michael. One of yeah. my favorite songs that that is on one of Michael's records that um, called um, One Step Away, which should have been a hit, but um, yeah, that's another story. Anyway. Yeah. 
Yeah, those guys are the best. And uh, but that specifically, so wrong, is um, I don't know why. A couple, I I discovered that song three or four years ago, and I listen. I I it it's one of those songs I'll just play on repeat over and over. I love that tune. Is there any kind of a story behind the creation of that song, or was it just, hey, we need a tune? You're working with Patrick. Let's figure something out. Well, the only story about that song, apart, was the fact that the original lyric was written about. Arab, uh, an Arab girl and an Israeli boy, or the other way around, whatever it was. The, oh. and and the record company didn't want a political lyric, so mm. we had to uh, we had to rewrite the lyric. Oh wow! Which was okay. disappointing because I never kept a copy of the other lyric. The other lyric was really good. Um, oh, but uh, yeah, that's really the only only story about that. And it was, of course, the single, and and we mm-hmm. we really believed in that song. You know, it was another Pat's, Pat's album, you know, it should have been, it, it had great songs on it, but, you know, it's another, got a bit buried by the record company like things used to do in those days. Yeah, yeah, I believe it. That's too bad. I love that song so much. Um, okay, another, I'm just going to keep throwing these songs at you, especially, I have a, uh, I have a sort of an obsession with 80s soundtrack songs because I grew up listening to, hearing, seeing all those movies and everything. I got to ask you about Love and Loneliness from the American Anthem soundtrack. Yeah, oh, that that movie is terrible. But the soundtrack has some really fun stuff on yeah, it, like uh, John Parr, and your song is great. Well, Love and Loneliness is written by a guy called Nick Garvey, who was in a band called Motors, I think. Okay. And and I loved the song. Um, it was always too long, and and it it was on my Atlantic record that I was supposed to do with um, 
um, well, the, you're the voice was supposed to go on. It was mm. produced by John Van Tongren, who I still work with, and Phil Golston, who I get a Christmas card from every year. <laughs> nice. And it, it was fraught with, you know, not having enough money to do what we wanted to do. And then we got an offer for this to be in the movie, which, by the way, do you know, is the first um, Weinstein Brothers movie. No, I didn't know that. Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, so wow. we were dealing with those guys, and I must say they were not nice or easy to deal with in any way, shape, or form. Even but back then, wow. back then, yeah. Wow. Yeah, they were bad cop, good cop, those guys sometimes. But anyway, yeah. the yeah, we did the song. I love the song, and I never was able to convince John and Phil that it was too long, and that it was just, it had too many bits that... Um, and I actually, on a record of mine, the, a compilation of mine, and I've got a DVD, live DVD, that I just finished the other day. So you can see what the band is like and what I'm doing. Okay. In, I would in, love that. Thank I you, Chris. finally, on the compilation, was able to edit it myself and edit it to what I thought the form of should be. But I love Love and Loneliness. I love it. Yeah. We've tried to play it so many times. I'm just writing notes here with my band. We've... And... You know, it's one of those things that didn't translate. But I haven't tried it since I've done the edit, so I'll try it again. Because mm. next, you know, this this last couple of years, we're going to play all sorts of different shit. So we'll look at we'll look at so wrong as well to play. Oh yeah, oh that's so good. Yeah, these are great songs. That's kind of what my I think that's why I have this obsession with movie soundtrack songs is because they're um, they're like finding little diamonds in the rough. You know, movie sound, especially for random movies like American Anthem that, you know, people have been sort of forgotten about. That stuff's buried somewhere. Yeah. And yet there's these great little nuggets on them that not enough people know. Or if they grew up loving that movie, they probably don't watch it now. But hearing uh, a song they recognize from a movie they love gives it this added layer of nostalgia and endearment. And so I um, I just thought that was a great tune. And I And you at the time were doing a lot of great soundtrack work. Um, another one being uh, It's Not Over from Playing for Keeps, which goes on to be a huge hit for Starship. How did that one happen? That was also from that album. Oh, okay. That was also from the Atlantic album. They found it and did it, so. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of, uh, are you talking about the uh, the High Cost of Living album? Yeah, High Cost of Living, that's right, yeah. 
Okay, that's a great album too, by the way. One of my favorite, maybe my favorite song of yours. Well, I don't know. I keep saying that. Empty House yeah. is a beautiful tune, and I love that song too. I just wanted you to know. Well, there's a good story about that song. My friend John Van Tonger that I, that I wrote that with. I, I was going, we needed one more song before we went to New York. And um, he called me and said, look, why don't we get together, see if we can put something together. We're all flying tomorrow, but come over today and see if we can. And we went over to his house and it was empty, except for his really? It was his piano because he was moving somewhere else. Uh. So... You know, we walked in. I went, shit, your house is empty. He said, yeah, it's the empty house. And that's how the song. Oh, went. got and it. And then, of course, we then had to write a scenario as to, you know, why some, you know, it's uh-huh. it's it's a bad love story. So, I mean, I don't mean it's a bad love story. I mean, it's no, I a story mean. of gone bad. Yes. And, and um, you know, and that's, he's just sitting there. And the only thing that's left is the empty house. No, I love that song, too. I do. Oh, it's a great tune. Um a piano sitting in the corner. That's exactly what it was. That's what. The now song. I get it. Okay. Now I get it. On that album, you worked with Robbie Neville. Robbie, and he is somebody that I am so perplexed on. Where he was great, we haven't heard from him in years. I think he became more of a backup, like behind the scenes guy. Do you keep in touch with Robbie Neville? How did you two even come together? Well, through John. No, okay. I haven't seen I haven't seen Robbie since that period of time. But John did tell me he's doing advertising. Yeah. He's writing advertising music and and uh, some TV stuff and stuff like that. He's working, he's a clever guy. Yeah. He can play anything, do anything, sing anything. He's a clever guy. He's definitely working without Okay. It. Yeah, I um I've tried to find him for years I to love, bring I him on the show. He was great. We sang on his record. He he's cool. He's a cool Good. cool dude. Yeah, I liked him a lot, and uh, I just have wondered where he went. I think he had something that, yeah, I'd heard the same thing. I think he had something to do with the high school musical movies that came yeah, out maybe. about 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Before we get into Freddie, I got one more thing of yours that I wanted to ask you about. I, I've become a little obsessed with your Toys and Dishes album. Okay. Because it sounds... I listened to that song, especially the the first one, Million Dollar Wonder Hit, and a few of the others, and I think, boy, this sounds like a guy who's been through some shit. Think I might walk into town, or maybe I'll just sit around, take my guitar, start to play, jam with my neighbor, see what he gotta say. Toys and dishes, my desires and my wishes all over the place. Got my taxes, got the bills, got my antidepressant pills, sold in my face. Sad, 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 sad but you. That's what it sounds like to me. 
<laughs> and you saying earlier that you have little kids and you're 75 and I'm starting to piece together what some of that stuff might be. Well, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's very. I mean, toys and dishes comes from the fact that, well, I, I, I stopped making records because I couldn't see the point of making, you know, spending all that time and putting your heart and soul into making a record. And then it ends up staying in your cupboard, basically. <laughs> um, because you can't get a record company to sign it. Nobody's interested in somebody my age. Of course, I should have realized that we should make the records to sell at our gigs, which is because people love them. Um, and, and then in the end, you know, I've always been writing stuff. And then Inga, my wife and I, we just decided, I just thought I'd start working. And we had young kids and, you know, and in between picking up toys and doing the dishes, we, uh, we, we started writing songs. That's what the title is uh, when you've got young kids. And then I realized that Inga, who is a really fantastic music buff nice. and, and really a great music enthusiast, a huge Queen fan, great Bruce Springsteen fan, nice. great fan of 80s rock and roll. You know, if she was here, she'd you know she'd say, "Where is the new? Where are the new people like that? Where are they?" Yeah. What you know, yeah. she's obviously much younger than me. Uh -huh. um, I started I, when I got into trouble with writing a lyric. I'd pop inside and I'd go, "Look, I can't figure this out. What it is?" And she, she'd come back five minutes later. What about this? So in the end, we started writing together, which we did on that record, and we've since been writing with my massive project that I'll I'll tell you about. Okay. That, that we nearly finished yeah so it it was a it was our experience really huh. my experience and our experience of all sorts of different things that's where um sleep away you know little girl comes from okay dream, dream away little girl yeah so yeah, there's uh am i right that i mean like a song like dark side or you know it just sounds like a the album of a guy who's Maybe coming out the other end of some kind of a midlife crisis or something. Maybe no. I'm way projecting this. Dark Side wasn't written in a midlife crisis. I managed to avoid having one of them. Oh, good for you. 
um, <laughs> I've managed to avoid that. No, it was, um, it was, that came out of talking about, um, you know, it, it, it is, it is about me. Yeah. Uh, and it's not about alcohol, you know, not thinking enough about decisions, you know, over a period of time when I was, you know, selfishly looking to just be, you know, just not thinking about making the right uh, decision about things. Uh, and and that's what, that's what that is. It's, it's, okay. it's dark side of just pushing things out of the way you didn't want to deal with them, you know? Yeah. So, okay. Um, have you, I mean, is, but it is, uh, it's to do with me having gone through a lot of shit. You're dead right about that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> And um, I'm out the other side into a relationship that's really fantastic with kids that are great and settled in a, in a place that's nice to live, which yeah. Belgium is. Okay. That's what I wanted to kind of find out about. I, I mean, I don't know. Have you been married before? Do you have older children or are you no, I've, in I've the throes married. of family I've way right married. now? I've been married before, made some silly, silly mistakes. So. Okay. Okay. Just curious. By the way, there's a song on there, Eddie Wants to Rock. Yeah. You have a kid named Eddie. Just wanna rock No, it's about my best friend, uh, who was an orthopedic surgeon in, in <laughs> Los Angeles, who I met when we were, um, he was kind of like a management partner in night, although he knew nothing about the music business. He was just, he was a money, money with the, behind the management. And um, yeah, we became great friends and he used to come out on the road and because uh, he just wanted to rock and roll, even though uh -huh. he was a real estate magnet and a, an orth a very very famous orthopedic surgeon in uh coming out of um new jersey and and then to la his name was ed abraham okay he he just wanted to come on the road and be a rock and roller so it's, and he died unfortunately oh. just before i started to make that record so oh um yeah that's oh, why i say at the end well hope you like your song <laughs> Yeah, my my youngest son is named Eddie, and so oh, when okay. I was, yeah, so I uh, it kind of when I listen to it, it reminds me of my kid, and he's a he's a fun loving, effervescent little kid. So it, yeah, well, he and he does want to rock, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, Ed was great. He was my best friend. Really, it was mm. very sad that he died. Died very suddenly, very quickly, and that's why my little girl at the end says, "I've still got Eddie Rabbit," which <laughs> is something that he gave her just before he died. So, really. A, yeah. a rabbit named Eddie? Is a rabbit named Eddie, of course. After him, yeah. <laughs> of course. Oh, that's great. Nice. I love Eddie Rabbit, too. Um, yeah, okay. Eddie. Absolutely. Let's talk about uh, how you 
when it got into the the queen orbit how you so the from what i understand you so here's the deal i i have the freddie mercury concert on dvd i used to watch it a lot i haven't seen it for a while i was going to try and watch it before we talked to see if i could find you on the stage and i didn't have enough time what was that experience like how did you become involved how did you become friendly with brian may i saw queen in like 1975 in Cardiff Castle, we supported them in London. Mm. And Freddie and Brian stood there and watched our set. Uh, and then I thought I would go and watch their set. And um, I got halfway up the stairs and was stopped by their security guys and told to basically no one was allowed on the stage. And Brian saw what was happening and he came over and told the guys, no, you can come and watch. We watched him. He can watch us. That's when I first met Brian. And so I remember that. And I think I got hold of Brian through um, his personal guitar guy who I met. I can't remember how. And I asked Brian to play on um, a song back in 79, I think. A song okay. called Shift in the Wind. In this If you haven't heard one of my songs, I'll send you that one. Oh, nice. Okay. With Brian. So he played on that and we just kept, and then I went, um, then I went um, on the road with him. Um, I can't remember whether it was before or after. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I worked with him a few times on, on his solo projects. We wrote together with um, somebody else whose name completely escapes me, a guitar player, Steve Hackett. Oh, sure. We yes. worked together. So I was working with him. And they asked me if I would rehearse the band for um, the Freddie Mercury tribute um, because the artist couldn't be there all the time. Mm -hmm. So I worked with them for six weeks, mm. um, which was a fantastic experience. I worked with everybody in the world yeah. that was important. I worked with David Bowie. I was Annie Lennox for David Bowie. I was David uh -huh. Bowie for Annie Lennox. Oh, wow. I sang every song. And... The gig was an absolute nightmare and horrible for me because as we were walking on, I was supposed to sing kind of magic. Oh. And as we were walking onto the stage, um, Roger came to me and said, oh, we're running out of time, so we're cutting your song. 
No, so you were supposed to have your own piece of that whole concert. That was the whole deal with me doing the six um, week. Oh no! Yeah, and organize the background vocals. I'd organize that as well. Oh, organizing all the background vocals. So, what made matters worse than anything was that Brian had a speech written for me that he was going to say when he introduced Kind of Magic, thanking me for all the work I'd done and how it wouldn't have been possible for it to happen if I wasn't being there rehearsing the band and everything like that. But because we didn't do the song, he didn't oh, do that. So, oh, man. so you can go back and watch it. When he introduced the background vocals, yeah. he didn't mention me either because I was I had already been introduced, if you know what I mean. Yes. So I didn't oh. get I didn't get um and uh Elton, who I've also worked with who's yeah, I've kind of lost contact with Elton, but I work with Elton a lot. He knew that <clears throat> he knew what had happened and he walked up to me halfway through because he was a bit upset at that thing as well. But that's OK. But Elton walked up to me at the end of it while I was still actually just standing there waiting to sing something else. He, I felt this tug on my leg and I looked around and Elton was standing there and he said, darling, I hope they're paying you a lot of money for this. <laughs> Were they? Uh, well, it was a charity concert. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. Oh, boy. Anyway. Uh, but that's so, sweet of him to have at least, you know, empathized with you so, in that and, moment. And afterwards, of course, everybody said they would have given up if they would have given up a part of their song or, you know, like yeah. the guy, uh, like what's his name, Joe Elliott from Death Leopard. He could have come and sung with me, mate, if I'd known you weren't going to sing a song because they all knew what I'd done. Yeah. Anyway, they all would have given up a bit of a song for me to sing it, just to have been. Oh. And uh, yeah, it was. It was a really. The day was horrible. Oh. But uh, having said that, I worked with, you know, I got to work with George Michael. Yeah, yeah. I got to work with Bowie. One of the, you know, he was so nice, Bowie, and George That's Michael as well. So uh, leading up to that day, you're thinking, you know, six weeks of preparation and rehearsal with every, you know, huge rock star in the world at that time. And you're right there making it all happen. And then when the day comes, you probably go into that day. I get first of all, you're, yeah, you're super nervous. Like, is this going to go off? We put so much work into it. And you know, and you know, and you know why I got dished because Spinal Tap, who were only supposed to do two hours, two minutes, did uh -huh. like. 11 minutes and, oh. they, and they were worried that the worldwide television would cut off Liza Minnelli at the end. I mean, <sighs> most absurd thing in the world. So they dished my song. Basically. Oh, that so they, hurts. What a kick in the nuts. It, it hurt. It hurt. It hurt really a lot, actually. I bet. Oh, that's terrible. Um, do you have any, uh, are there any stories you can tell besides the ones you just did about anyone involved? I mean, you mentioned how nice Bowie was. I mean, that Bowie everybody, Lennox. Everybody was fantastic. I mean, really? Annie Lennox, I've, I've worked with Annie Lennox a couple of times. She was brilliant. Everyone was brilliant. I mean, George stood around and waited for his time to rehearse because uh -huh. he wanted to get it dead right. And he was fantastic, you know. Yeah. Uh, and what's the name that sang um, <clears throat> Lisa Stansfield that sang? Yes. Brilliant. Everybody was brilliant. Everybody put the time in. Everybody gave their time. Everybody was brilliant. Freddie would have been proud, I think. That's great. That's great. Even the heavy metal guys like Metallica and Extreme. Yeah, fantastic. And, and the thing is, I, you know, it, 
it made me aware of how unbelievably brilliant Freddie was because I had to sing every song and the songs don't work unless you sing them like Freddie did. And that's because he was so brilliant. He sang them so brilliantly and everything was, you know, he, he was amazing. And I didn't really know it, how amazing he was until I had to sing all the songs. Yeah. I just so, you know, in that respect. And also, if it wasn't for Freddie dying, I would have never met my wife. And really, a life would have been incredibly di- different if, if, it, if it wasn't for that. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, so I owe him <laughs> the life I'm living now. Yes. Oh, wow. Which, you know, makes up for everything, really. I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's impressive. Boy, see, this is why I love talking to people like you, Chris. I mean, people, I don't know that too many people who aren't as nerdy about music as I am know that the same guy who sang, you know, revved up like a douche, also did all this stuff for Freddie, also, you know, wrote You're the Voice and all these other things. I just, it's so fascinating what kind of a career you've had. Well, you can see me on the video i am on the video i played a okay. couple of guitar and i'm singing at the back so you can see that and also at the very end when everything is cheering and shouting you'll hear brian go and chris thompson oh because somebody said to him you forgot him and he goes oh chris runs back up to the microphone typical brian i love brian he's 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 cosmic yeah i really, can see he that. really is he's a stargazer cool. and he's cosmic brian he's Good. really really is uh yeah he's a special guy I believe it. I believe it. Um, let me ask you, let me throw a couple names at you, people you've collaborated with over the years. I'm curious if you have any stories there. If you don't, we'll move along. But these are some people that I'm really fond of. One of them is uh, somebody who I've had on the show here a couple of times, Rupert Hine. I love Rupert. And thankfully, he. I'm so blessed that he's given me some of his time a couple times. I love Rupert as well. Okay. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, he was he was together. Yeah, well, when I first went to England, I worked with him and uh, Trevor Race, a, a drummer, and uh, yeah, on, on various different ways I've worked with Rupert. I loved Rupert. He became a very successful producer. I don't know what he's doing now, but I'd love to send him an email. That would be brilliant. Yeah, he um, he still produces a lot of things. I think he goes around the world, kind of giving lectures and stuff like that. I think he's involved in some, you know, causes, maybe some charities, things well, like great. that. I'd love to get in contact with him. Send me an email. That'd be fantastic. I will. Um, really what is. about Trevor Rabin? Trevor Rabin. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Trevor. Yeah. Well, Trevor's a great guy too. <laughs> I love him too. Yeah. Trevor. Trevor, as we call him. Really? <laughs> he never lost his South African accent. Trevor. That's great. Yeah, Trevor. Yeah, he rented a house from me in Los Angeles. It was we we we've been yeah we've been in and out and love Trevor and I. Yeah. Really? What does that I, mean? He, he's great. I haven't seen Trevor for ages. Unbelievably talented man, oh, and a great songwriter, fantastic guitar player, and you know he's done his thing with the film music. Brilliant. Yeah. And uh, my friend John Van Tongren that I've worked for him and and. Trevor was involved with John as well. So I've, you okay. know, I've come across Trevor a lot. I really like Trevor. I don't know what he's doing now. I'm sure he's working very hard. Yeah. I love him. I've tried to get him on here and his people don't, won't make it happen. But I just finally saw he's back doing a sort of version of Yes with Rick Wakeman oh, and yeah, John Anderson. Yeah. 
Well, if or I he bump, was. I saw that a couple of years ago. If I, yeah, he still is. Yeah. If I bump into him, I'll tell him to talk to you. Yeah, please do. <laughs> couple. Okay, so we're coming up at the end of the hour. Let me ask you just a couple quick things. Number one, you did a cover that I really like of Walter Egan's Hot Summer Night. Um, I've had Walter on here a couple of times. I'm friendly with him, too. What was it about that song that made you decide you wanted to co cover it? Well, that was back to Richard Perry and Night again. Mm. Um, and like I said, we weren't good enough songwriters at that period of time. So we were looking for other people's songs. I think Richard really believed that it would be it was a hit song. Mm -hmm. And so we sang it with the Stevie Langer, the other singer. She sang it pretty much, and I did the, that's me. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, we just thought it was going to be a hit, and it was pretty much. Mm -hmm. Did pretty well. Good. Um, yeah. I mean, okay. the only story about that song is that we tried every drummer in Los Angeles to do the shuffle. Really? You know, the only the people that we really wanted to do it, which was Mick Fleetwood, of course, he was doing something else, but, uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I uh, that's a, such a great song, and I was just curious what the story behind how it came into your orbit is. Yeah, it came in via Richard. That makes sense. You know, going back to Manfred Mann, I, I have to admit, I've always been kind of confused as to what Manfred, like, is that someone, that's his real name? I, I imagine Manfred Mann's situation must be similar to Alan Parsons, who I know you also sang with. He's the producer mastermind behind a collective of musicians and various lead singers, but because they're the focal point, Manfred and Allen, the band carries their name, but they aren't the ones out front singing. Do I have this right? Is there similarities yeah, that, there? It's that's pretty, that's right. It's not his real name. Oh, Manfred is, Manfred is his real name, of course. Okay. Um, no, that's not his real name, but it's just, if they just came up, I don't know how he came up with that name. They came up with it when they were the Mike Hug, man blues brothers so okay I, I have no idea how it came to man but um yeah manfred man it was kind of a thing with the, with the 60s band that everybody was manfred man we were all the same kind of guy oh, okay devo before it was devo you know what i mean got it yeah okay yeah i've always yeah, been that's true i mean used. manfred i learned so much from that guy it's a shame he didn't learn some stuff from himself but uh really yeah, he, he, yeah, he, he, um, in, yeah, in later years, he hasn't kept true to the, in my opinion, it's only my opinion, uh -huh. 
true to the um, concept he made us stick with, which is like, you know, keep going until something's really, really great and don't do anything unless it's really great. And it's with the live shows as well, you know, something that I've carried with me because I learned so much from him. We, you know, it was difficult for us to work together because we had such a different kind of way, vibe towards music. But, you know, I learned uh, such a lot from him about arranging songs and, and um, yeah, and working and working on, on certain things that you believe in. I mean, we still email each other, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that we were friends. Okay. Um, hmm. Which is a shame, really, because we spend an awful lot of time together. <laughs> yeah, that is um, that is a shame. Okay. I've been, you know, I've been asking him to join me a couple of times with my band on a couple of charity things I've done, which I thought because there's a lot of people in Germany that would like to see us on the same stage together. I believe it. And I, I've made that suggestion a few times over the last few years and got turned down every time. Not sure why. He hmm. always says to me, "It's nothing personal," but I mean. <laughs> Yeah, it, it must be. <laughs> well, I think... Or something. I think it might be personal with himself, actually, mm. rather mm. than with me. But we'll, we'll you know. Yeah. But we email. He just did an interview for me. I'm going to do a documentary of my life and all the people that I've... Ooh. So he, he's, he was the first. So he did that. Nice. So that was very kind of him to do that because I thought he was going to say no. Yeah. And so, but I've, I can't do that until I've finished. And that's another reason for finishing my live gigs because I've got some, I've got some projects that I want to do. One of which is doing a, a documentary of my life because it's pretty interesting. Even though you know I didn't become the superstar, and I think it might be interesting because of that. Yeah, true, very true. Well, and that's uh, that's that can be just as provocative, if not more provocative, of a story. The guy who did something different, or you know, but I work came to so terms. Exactly, so, that's what I, I mean. So many people who I'm going to interview, and and um, yeah. Um, well, look, let's. I want to close it out with w one final thing. I, I'm curious what your favorite story is when you sit there in your studio room in Belgium in your house, and you look back. I mean, we just recounted over 40 years of mu your musical history. What are some of, what's the story that comes to mind where you're just like, I cannot believe that happened to me. That was so amazing. Is it a show? Is it hearing yourself on the radio? Is it an interaction with a peer? Is it writing a song that you're proud of? What, what is the thing? Well, I think writing your other voice has got to be, you yeah. know, the way that that kind of, I mean, I always tell people that it wrote itself because I had, I had the drum program and, Andy came around and we, you know, we kind of, it just kind of wrote itself. It's weird. Ah. Um, the lyric was another story that was much more difficult. Um, ah. But but I think as far as um, favorite stories of things that have emotionally moved me the most was I was playing a place called the Lorelei with Man From Man's Earth Band. I think it was 1984, probably, maybe 83, 84. It's like a outdoor amphitheater mm. and was, um, we were playing there and I would say there would be 30,000 people oh, wow. and I was singing for you. So I started and I had my eyes closed and like 30,000 people and I had my eyes closed and 
I got through the first verse and the first chorus. It's a difficult song for me to sing because it's quite emotional. It's a Bruce Springsteen song. Mm-hmm. But we do it in a completely different way as well. It's just piano and vocal, it is. So it's just piano and voice. And it's it's difficult to sing. It's I still sing it. And it's emotional. And I got through verse one and verse two, and I opened my eyes. And the whole place had lighters. Oh, nice. It had happened to me before in other venues and everything, but it was something about that venue. I opened it. And um, I opened my eyes and it was like just this flame of candles yeah. and, and 30,000 people. I think everybody lit a candle or, or a match or a lighter. And I just, you know, burst into tears and finished, That's amazing. The, song, finished the song. Um, I'm not sure quite how. And uh, yeah, that's probably the greatest kind of emotional wow. experience that I had. I believe and it. I've got some other... I've got some other amazing stories that I can't say because people are still alive. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah, that happens sometimes. Well, thank you for telling but that one at least. It will come in the documentary because, you know, I'm going to I'm going to make it a documentary that tells a lot of stuff. Good. People are writing books now that tell a lot of shit. I'll I'll tell it in my documentary in a way that makes sense. So. Good. Good. Uh, well, look, thank you for talking with me, Chris. I, uh, I, played I, John. I just I pieced together that you were the same guy that did all these things. Honestly, like I said, about three or four years ago, when I figured out when I fell in love with the all the right moves song. And then I, then I'm realizing this same guy has done all these other songs and made all these and that I love. And I didn't realize I hadn't pieced it together. And uh, so if you can't tell, I'm, I'm a fan of so much of what you've done. And I'm really grateful that you took the time to talk to me. No, it's my pleasure. There you have it, Chris Thompson. I hope you guys enjoyed that. And I hope, like I see, you know, I love talking to people like Chris because he's touched all these different things that have probably popped up in your life that you didn't know were connected. And yet he's some connective tissue, but whether it's a movie soundtrack song or the Freddie Mercury concert or Manfred Mann or The Runner or whatever, these songs that we know and you don't really realize that the same guy is doing all of that stuff. At least that's how I feel. So Chris, thank you for talking to me. He was very kind. He sent me a very nice care package with a bunch of CDs in it. Bless your heart, Chris. So anyway, I hope you guys heard some stuff that you like. This song right here is the one I mentioned earlier, Empty House. I really love this track. It's so kind of dark and, and spooky almost. You guys tell me it reminds me of something and I cannot put my finger on what it is. Maybe it's Hot Summer Nights by Walter Egan. Whatever it is, this song is just under my skin. I love it. All right. Next week. Next week's going to be an interesting one because next week the guest is not only is he a one hit wonder, he's a one and done. And it's one of the biggest hits of the 80s. So, and it's one of the most kind of unique, uh, out of the box, you never would have seen it coming hits of the 80s. And yet that's the guy we're talking to next week. He only ever put out one album and that was it. And so, and it's a, I don't know if you'll know the name, but everybody knows this song. So anyway, come back next week. That's what we're doing. It's going to be an interesting one. 
Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makiewicz, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do and for putting these things together. You guys know how to find us by now. You can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. If you are not following our Facebook page, I'm still doing the daily polls. Those are a lot of fun. I love hearing from you guys, and I find it so fascinating what things you, what things don't get a lot of votes and what things do because i'm thinking do you guys not know these bands why do they not engender the same amount of votes as the other bands anyway you guys baffle me sometimes but i love the interaction so give us a like on there and follow us okay we will be back next tuesday thanks everybody we love you